Hello and welcome to the next edition of Lights in Europe. Today we speak to Andras Benes, who is a very well-known name for all of us who have ever tried to prepare for the very complicated selection process, trying to land a job in the European institutions, listen to his advice on how to prepare for this selection process and what are the skills of the future if you want to be successful and competitive on the Brussels labor market. He's also a director of Public Affairs Council, a platform uniting big brands who try to be successful in their lobbying efforts. So let's uh, discuss with him what is his opinion on the shady image of lobbying as an industry and what he thinks is the correct approach to designing strategies when somebody wants to persuade policymakers and legislators in Europe, also building on his experience from Washington, D.C. So I welcome here Andras Bennett. Hello, Andras. Hi and welcome. You're a very special person for me because I wouldn't be here in the European Commission if it wasn't for the books that you've published that I was studying from for many, many years. So thank you for all your work that you've done for the EU bubble. My pleasure. Happy I could help. And so before we start discussing what it's like to work for the institutions and how to get there, tell us a little bit more broadly about your career path and why is it special or not so special for Brussels and why should anybody care actually? Right. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and I'm happy to talk about the path I've, uh, I've taken because it might be a little less typical for Brussels as uh, I started working in institutions when I came here and now I'm in the private sector and most often people do the reverse where they start in the private sector with an eye on joining uh, the EU as an official or perhaps uh, as a politician. Does it mean your experience in the institutions was so traumatizing that you decided to leave? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, uh, when it comes to the institutions, I think the main question is really, are you a good fit for the institutions or are the institutions a good fit for your personality? Mm-hmm. And for me, I need a lot of autonomy and I'm very entrepreneurial. And uh, without any value judgment or with any uh, opinion, whether it's a good or bad thing, I just uh, feel more comfortable in the private sector. But I'm very grateful to the institutions at the same time because I've learned here a lot and it's given me tremendous experience that I'm using to this day. This is a very interesting point you're making because there's many of us that feel very entrepreneurial, intrapreneurial in the institutions and we enjoy a lot of autonomy and creativity as well. And the, the eternal question that people keep on asking themselves is to which degree can you create your own job in the institutions? Because if you really care for being inside of, of the system and producing good quality Europe, most of the people try to do the maximum possible to stretch the business as usual of the institutions and, and try to adapt it to these new needs, let's say, of let's say new generation or the other cultures which weren't in the DNA of the institution. What do you think about it? Is it possible? But first and foremost, I'm really happy we jumped right into these uh, more substantive topics because uh, interesting to talk about anyone's uh, professional background, but I think it's even more exciting to talk about things of substance. This is a thing of substance. I fully agree with you. Institutions, like any public institution or public administration, but most notably the European institutions and even more specifically the European Commission, does need to adapt to the, to the zeitgeist to what's been a trend in the employment market and what's been happening in political terms. And that basically means endorsing a more open 
and not just transparent, but a more open corporate culture. That also includes this very podcast, perhaps, where you are trying to look behind the curtain and reveal the faces and the individuals and the personalities who make the European Commission work. And broadly speaking, the European institutions or the Euro bubble uh, work because I'm no longer in the institutions. But it also means engaging more with, with Europeans, with citizens at large, with uh, all sorts of stakeholders and being able to describe and discuss what they do, why they do that, why they are engaged. And that certainly means new ways of, of, of engagement. It cannot be simply passing out the press release and hoping that it's going to change hearts and minds. It never will, probably it never has, but this is something where the social media comes into the picture, where uh, staff ambassadors come into the picture, where certain initiatives, where others want to create associations or engagement clubs or any other form of engagement needs to be supported. Otherwise, the commission would just find itself in a vacuum and to some degree it already has. And this is exactly the realization that has triggered some internal thinking and a broader or let's say a more open approach to communication at large inside the commission as well to simply adapt to the changing social needs and to the changing technological context in which the EU operates. And so, as you say, exactly, that's also one of the missions behind the creation of this podcast, to reveal the curtain that's oftentimes covering who are the people in the institutions, which I find can often be a barrier to attracting the best people on the market. I hope that once people understand a little bit better who are the people in the system, it might become a more attractive employer institutions at large can become more more attractive employer to the best people on the market, which is the market where you're an expert and which is where my point about the, the whole recruitment process comes in. So you are a founder of, of this company, which which has helped, I guess, maybe dozens, hundreds of thousands of people, I don't know by now, to make it into the institutions. Tell us a little bit, a little bit more about the recruitment process into the institutions because it's a very, very long-lasting, difficult, complicated process that's been uh, very painful for many of us to get through. But how does this process compare to the one outside in the outside world? Let's say compared to the other big institutions out there, or to the consultancies, or to the any other leaders on the market who manage to attract the best talent on the market. Right. Well, this is uh, obviously a, a charged and complex question, and it's hard to describe everything in a in a nutshell. But I'll I'll, I'll give it a go. So, EU institutions they first and foremost they select candidates before they recruit the candidates. So there is an office called EPSO, EPSO, the European Personal Selection Office. They do the hard job of having tens of thousands of candidates and narrowing it to a couple hundred or perhaps a few thousand each year that they place on a so-called reserve list. So they are doing the selection. And once somebody is placed on this reserve list, then you become recruitable. These are Which is very useful distinction. I never really heard anybody make this distinction of selection and recruitment as a next step. So thank you for explaining that. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. It took me a couple of years to realize it myself, but <laughs> it, it is helpful. Uh, but this is certainly for permanent jobs. So for permanent jobs, this process comes into play. Uh, and this process, in a nutshell, has uh, three or four 
core steps. So first you need to apply, which means you need to fill in all sorts of documents and mostly online forms. After which, usually, there is a so-called pre-selection test. This is the dreaded abstract verbal numerical reasoning tests, occasionally a so-called situational judgment test. So these are multiple choice tests that you sit at a test center and you do it on a computer and then you pick A, B, C, D, sometimes E, and uh, hopefully you get the right answers. And if everything goes well, you are placed in the top tier of candidates. The next step is usually a so-called E-Tray exercise, which only a fraction of the original candidates will take because the first part has selected them out. But those who got good scores and they get to the second stage with the E-Tray exercise, they also sit that test. And if everything goes well, they have high enough scores to go to the next step. The next step is a so-called assessment center. And that's a usually a one-day series of tests, usually in Brussels, where you need to do a group exercise, have a special interview, have an oral presentation, sometimes a case study. There are different types of exercises within. And then again, if everything goes well and you have high enough scores and you're placed in the top tier of candidates, eventually you'll end up on the reserve list. So this process takes usually a couple of months, sometimes maybe up to nine months, so it is fairly long. But in the end, you have been among those elite candidates who can then be recruited. But then again, this is for permanent jobs, and there are a lot of permutations and variations from the process that I've just outlined, depending on what sort of exam we're talking about. For non-permanent jobs, so for temporary jobs in the institutions, usually the process is more streamlined with fewer steps. Sometimes just you send in your CV or upload it to a website. There is a short test, an interview, and then you can be already in. So it's hard to say something which applies to all situations and the kind of jobs, but there is a process to it. And to the credit of the institutions, in most cases, this is a really well-documented and procedure-driven system, which may sound a little bureaucratic, but at the same time, it really favors uh, an objective assessment mm -hmm. of candidates. Whereas in any other context, mostly whether it's the private sector or the NGO world or, or any other jobs that deal with EU institutions, it's usually far less proceduralized and there's a lot more subjectivity that goes mm -hmm. into it. That can be a good thing occasionally, if uh, you can convince an employer with an amazing CV and cover letter and you can be in, and perhaps you're not the most qualified candidate, but you communicate well about these things, that's perhaps positive for your career prospects. At the same time, there's, there are far more unique elements that go into it, and that's pretty much a classic recruitment process. So what I'm saying is both have their advantages and disadvantages, but you need to know what type of selection applies depending on which job you'd like. So if you want to become a diplomat in the Slovak permanent representation in Brussels, the road is usually through the capital and perhaps the Ministry of Foreign Affairs will have its own system and eventually they will send you to Brussels. If you are applying for a job with an NGO, First and foremost, you should be familiar with their work and say your value set or your ideas or ideology 
should align with that particular NGO's work. If you want to become a member of the European Parliament, well, the road through that is convincing enough elect, uh, voters to vote for you. So it, it always, you need to look very carefully at the kind of organization you want to work for. You need to look at what they deal with and what system or process they are using to select candidates. If your dream job is to be, I'm not saying a lobbyist, but to be an EU advocate. And that EU advocate can really be arguing for animal rights, for the environment, for digital rights, or working as a civil servant at the European Commission. Depends on in what format you'd like to engage with mm -hmm. the European idea. So my question is now about our region, Central Europe, because you're Hungarian, I'm Slovak, and I feel that our countries are not too present in the institutions. And from a very quick look at the statistics, I would also, I have the impression really from the statistics that we're kind of underrepresented compared to what the European Commission would want compared to the proportions of the population. What do you think um, are the good strategies of the member states who do a good job in placing their or helping their talent really uh, land in the institution, not really placing as in you take whoever you like, but helping your talent in the country to land in Brussels because you count this as being part of your diplomatic body really? Right. Let me separate this question into two parts. One is the representation or the proportion of a given country's citizens in the institutions. And then the second one, we look at what these countries could do to help their own succeed at a higher rate to get into the institutions. So the first part, the proportion or the numbers of certain citizens in the institutions. This is really difficult. The EU staff regulations actually says that there should be a proportionate number of staff compared to the size of a given member state. So if you take Malta or if you take Germany, it would indeed be strange to have, I don't know, 10,000 Maltese and then uh, 500 Germans among the institutions. So that's one aspect, the, the population versus the, the numbers inside the institutions. Number two, the selection and the recruitment is based on merit. So if you're trying to have those numbers and at the same time you're looking for the best candidates, it becomes a difficult exercise to say who's the best, but at the same time, where are they coming from? So you're trying to reconcile these two seemingly competing priorities. Then there's another aspect that not all positions are considered the same. So for instance, if somebody is a director general and another person is an assistant, that may carry a different weight from how you look at this. So when you say, or your impression that Central Europe, and you very generously call it Central and not Central and Eastern Europe, but uh, whatever the term, term you were using, if you look at the numbers, as far as I'm aware, we are fairly re well represented, given the 2004 enlargement and the large intake of a lot of candidates at the time, or, or since that time, we're fairly well represented on relatively lower and middle level of the institutional hierarchy. Whereas in senior posts, we're fairly underrepresented. Whereas other countries which had been members for many decades uh, prior to us, certainly had a chance to rise to the top of the echelon of the European Commission and have very senior positions. So it's a, another question of what level of seniority are you considering when you're looking at these numbers? 
So I'm not saying, again, what's the, what's the good way or the bad way, or is it positive or not, but there are many aspects to it of how do you weigh those numbers compared to the positions, the countries, the citizens, etc. Question number two, how can a country help their citizens? And it perhaps somewhat linked to the first one. In some member states, even if they had been members for many, many years, are facing a great challenge persuading, convincing their citizens to apply for EU jobs and eventually succeed in becoming EU officials. These are typically countries where the salaries tend to be far higher than perhaps Brussels. So from a, from a salary perspective, it's not such a convincing argument to say you can have a very attractive salary here. And otherwise, let's say you take the UK, especially now or whenever this podcast might be aired, we don't know what its <laughs> status is going to be, but uh, increasingly it seems they are going to quit at the end of October. So uh, the UK has, has, even in the past few years, has, has had a very difficult challenge convincing British citizens to apply for EU jobs. So there, there was another uh, political aspect to it. But what can the countries do to counter these, uh, these challenges? They can certainly help their citizens through training courses or information campaigns, other tools, make it, make it available to their interested citizens to apply for the jobs and certainly increasing their chances of success. And I know some member states, and actually our company even works with some of these permanent representations or governments to help provide such services to their citizens. And in most cases, this works really, really well. So simply having the information available, having the tools at their disposal, so just making it easy to peruse preparation tools and information resources already increases the number of candidates and by extension, statistically speaking, increases the number of people who succeed in these very difficult tests. In other cases, the, the problem is more political or let's say more macro level. Mm -hmm. So there, even if you do great services to your citizens, just simply there is reluctance to contemplate a job in Brussels or in Luxembourg or working for EU institutions. There, it's hard for a Minister of Foreign Affairs or an HR department to paint a rosy picture about what the EU is about when perhaps the country's prime minister or top-level politicians are extremely skeptical about the European project. So there, good luck telling the, the citizens that despite what our big bosses are saying, it's actually a pretty good thing to build the European in integration. Which is why all of us are doing what we're trying, what we're doing really promoting a little bit what the EU is about and what are the everyday benefits. Your other identity, in addition to the EU training involvement, is being a director of Public Affairs Council, which is, I assume, some kind of professional association which unites public affairs companies globally, very broadly speaking, looking at what I could understand. Let's look into what is public affairs versus lobbying versus all kinds of swear words which are used for this industry, especially, I mean, including our region where lobbying is not really regulated. It's, uh, 
it's associated with all kinds of shady business practices. Is this part of what your job is about, that you're trying to humanize or, or uncover all these myths about public affairs industry? Let me start with the term public affairs. I, mean, I think it sounds like a euphemism, slash a, a meaningless cryptic term that we're just using instead of lobbying. Well, public affairs is, at least in my interpretation, broader than lobbying. But perhaps we start with lobbying in the first place. Lobbying is typically understood as a private interest trying to influence a government. So that's sort of the narrow term where if I'm an energy company, I'd like to get the government to pass laws which will ultimately benefit me. And indeed, that's what gives lobbying such a bad rap, such a bad reputation that it's often perceived and sometimes not just perceived, but it often is biased or, or perhaps a sort of selfish way of representing one's own interests. And that's really not good. The smart companies or smart lobbyists, and then I'll transit to the term the smart people in public affairs, they understand that they are in it for the long shot. So if they get a particular concession from a government by adding a clause or regulation or a piece of uh, concession in a law which favors only them, it might give them a short-term benefit very positive benefit from their bottom line, but it's still a short-term benefit after all, instead of planning for the long-term because it might be a reputational issue after a while, or they might get a bad press uh, as a result, or they might be called out for unethical concessions that they were given by a regulator. So, And that's where lobbying, the, the smart lobbying, considers the strategy. Hence the term public affairs, because it not only includes that direct interest, rep interest representation that I go get to see a European commissioner and try to persuade them to change uh, whatever legislation they're working on. Public affairs would include communication, that would include looking at the corporate strategy, that would include uh, dealing with stakeholders, another beautiful term we use, essentially means dealing with everyone who has an interest in this game. And that could be activist organizations, nonprofits, the press, media, social media, that could be citizen groups, uh, local inhabitants. If I'm about to build a new factory in the remote areas of Eastern Slovakia, depend on what my business is. So public affairs is a, is a far broader concept which is part of a company's long-term strategy. What we do actually is, I'm in a lucky situation, we don't lobby on anyone's behalf. And my organization, Public Affairs Council, we have uh, almost 700 members. And these members would probably not agree on anything if I were to get them in a room and try to pass a position paper or a resolution. On a so certain what, piece of subject or legislation. Uh, exactly. So what we do actually, we talk about the methodology. So how do you do public affairs and how do you lobby better and they can learn from each other. So if I'm uh, IKEA or if I'm Lego or if I'm uh, Bayer or if I'm uh, uh, Novo Nordisk, whatever company there might be, they would sit down in a room and say, well, we ran this campaign and here's what we learned. Or say, we're trying to measure the impact of our public affairs. What sort of key performance indicators are you using? So it's a business conversation, it's a communications conversation, it's a political conversation around things which matter to them all. 
I guess it's impossible to answer a huge question that I'm going to ask, but since, but since you've mentioned all these brands, how does the European public affairs methodology or the way we do public affairs here in Brussels and how we as institutions interact with businesses here, how does it differ or not from the other mechas of lobbying around the world? You're headquartered in Washington DC, so that's the first example that comes to my mind. Can you say in a couple of sentences, like really, really macro level differences in the methodology, how is the business different or not? It is certainly different. The number one is just the context is so different, as we know. In American politics, there's a lot of money involved in campaign, campaign financing, and everything around it. And generally, companies are willing to spend far more on the political work of their companies. Whereas in Europe, the dynamics are very different. The cultural diversity, language diversity, despite the European Union, it's still a very fragmented uh, continent in, in many ways, from even in business terms, despite the single market, despite all the good things that have been put in place. So it's a much more fragmented place to deal with lobbying or public affairs in Europe. So that's pretty much the, the very basic context. And also the role of business versus or with politics is another angle, which is, which is different from the US. But having said that, there are a lot of commonalities where these sort of methods of, of doing a structured, planned, strategic campaign on a given issue. So let's take your renewable energy company, let's say you're a wind energy company, you're making wind turbines, and you'd like to have a bigger impact in Europe. Obviously, you want to sell more of your products, but it's a heavily regulated industry, and you're up against a lot of legacy energy companies in many cases. So how are you going to do that? Well, you need to adopt long-term planning and how do you engage with regulators in Germany, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Poland, different markets. You, you do that sort of planning. You monitor the laws and regulations that are in place and the new ones that are being considered. So all of these things are really common because American public affairs specialists would do exactly the same. And increasingly, there are more tools to do that. A lot of American companies have developed softwares and many American companies have landed in Brussels to sell these <laughs> softwares and the European version of these softwares. There are certainly a lot of homegrown European software companies as well in this field. You look at the media context. Well, Politico has been in town for something like, what, four, three, four years ago, uh, three, four years. Again, that's an American heritage <laughs> or, or like a company with an American legacy. But then here's here they are in Europe and trying to create sort of a political discussion or political narratives that uh, that goes beyond the Brussels bubble and really goes into the national markets. So you see that these trends are really arriving in Europe and they are shaping the way lobbying is being done on this continent. And so now coming back to the question of the public affairs labor market here in Brussels, what do you feel are the competencies that make people shine in this hyper concentrated market where it's very difficult for people to land a job and, and become a successful public affairs professional? I find the most frustrating aspect for the junior people arriving to the market is the fact that, as you say, the market is so fragmented in the EU that the national experiences don't count. So most of the people feel like whenever they come back 
come to town, uh, come to Brussels, they have to start building they, their career from scratch, disregarding of how many masters they have and how many languages they speak. So what would you recommend to the young people out there when they really want to develop a successful public affairs career in Brussels or at the European level? How would you go about it now with all the wisdom that you have? <laughs> You're very generous, assuming I do have wisdom. But um, You've seen a lot. I've Let's seen a lot. That. Okay, I accept that. <laughs> It's um, perhaps two answers. One is a general career advice. Uh, I don't know where I read it, but it, it sounded like a, a really smart insight when I came across this idea. It's basically trying to build your career as a letter T. So T, T meaning that it's broad and deep at the same time. So the broad is the upper part of the letter T, and then the deep is the, the, is the vertical line. The broad one is where you know a lot about a lot. <laughs> you know perhaps politics, you're interested in cultural trends, you have a certain understanding of uh, technology, you have a broad view about the world and you're fairly well informed of what's happening out there. And then the vertical line there is of, of the letter T is where you have a subject matter expertise. So you might be an energy expert, you might be a privacy expert, you might be into medical devices whatever it may be, but you have a deeper understanding. Now, look who's talking. I really do not have that. <laughs> so I don't have that sort of uh, technical expertise, but um, it's perhaps more the combination of, of different skills and some knowledge. So I don't want to talk about myself. It's more about giving advice, but perhaps combining seemingly separate things works really well when it comes to career. And that's the second thing. By that I mean, if you happen to have a degree in organic chemistry and you know about EU decision-making, that's a pretty good mix because it's a fairly unlikely mix where you could end up working for a chemical organization, an environmentalist NGO, whatever it may be, you have a subject matter knowledge plus a procedural knowledge and that makes you an attractive candidate. I'm just thinking what else I could I could share there. It's it's also those who come to Brussels to have a career here in European affairs, broadly speaking European affairs, often realize only when they're here how fierce the competition is. So Brussels is is still really good at attracting talented people who speak one, two, three, four, five languages, lots of languages. They've seen the world, they were Erasmus exchange students and uh, they did internships at prestigious organizations. So the bar is very high and finding what makes you unique is where most people face the challenge. Is why are they different from the person next door or the one that they might be sharing an apartment while they are doing their internship or uh, being a stagiaire at the commission is why would I make the cut and not my next door neighbor? And this is where they need to look into their unique selling proposition and finding that specialty that sets them apart from others. And since you also have this stand for thought leadership and transforming really how the Brussels bubble works, I'm thinking what would be your advice that is more long term in terms of the skills that are going to be requested on the market later on when you look at 
the world of future of work, where you look at where the lobbying industry is going in the DC, or maybe other trends in the other sectors, for the people who are really junior and just embarking on their education path, what would you recommend them not to forget? Because it's gonna be on top of the recruiter's agenda in a couple of years. What is the skill of the future that we should focus on now? The classic answer for this would be communication, understanding digital communication, digital platforms and how they operate because they have such an impact on public opinion, on political opinion, on the way any organization communicates. That's the skill of today. That's the skill of today. I think the skill of tomorrow or or the near future is understanding strategy, understanding the long-term strategy of an organization. So not just what they're doing now, but what major forces that are shaping its position will impact what they need to do next. And that certainly involves just understanding what the public mood is and and political trends. And political not in a party political sense, but uh, say you look at Me Too movement's impact on women's empowerment and women's role in companies. That sort of social phenomena will certainly have a major role in shaping companies. So if if I were to advise someone who has uh, three to six months on their hand and saying, what should I do while I'm looking for a job? Well, enroll in a couple of online courses or buy a couple of good books on uh, business strategy, corporate strategy, or advocacy strategy. Familiarize yourself with what's out there. Because if you understand your organization's long-term challenges, and you can come up with ideas, come up with suggestions to the to the senior management and saying, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm suspecting. This is a trend that we need to answer to. This will make you a very attractive candidate in their eyes because you will be part of the organization's mission and not just someone who executes on a daily level or does the coffee and uh, monitors which new legislation was passed uh, in the parliament. Very well. Thank you very much. Very useful. All the best to you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye.